You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 21st of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The UN Security Council continues to bicker over the right way to say ceasefire. Argentinians begin learning what they've let themselves in for and have European wolves messed with the wrong person. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Daniela Pelled and Andrew Thompson, will discuss the day's big stories and we'll meet the composer John Baptiste, subject of the acclaimed documentary American Symphony. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Andrew Thompson, Latin America specialist and regular contributor to the news site Latin News, and by Daniela Pelled, managing editor at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, our, our light introductory banter component this evening has a, a largely theatrical theme. Um, Daniela, we, we will start with you. You have been to the theatre. I've been to the theatre a number of times in, in recent weeks. As, okay, as well, I, don't, I, don't trowel it on. Well, I mean, <laughs> I will do almost anything to avoid going to a pantomime. So, in lieu of Christmas and yet cheer, here you are. <laughs> in lieu of Christmas cheer, I just I just went to a a, a rather charming um, thing involving puppets um, on the South Bank, the House with Chicken Legs. Did it actually involve literal chitin, chicken, chicken, chicken legs, or were the chicken legs a a, a metaphor? Well, for it something? was. It, it involved actual artistic chicken legs. Righto. If you see what I mean. Puppets and lights and all those sort of fandangles. Not necessarily sold uh, mm-hmm. on that. I'm not sure it's um, your... A- Andrew, you are not merely going to the theatre. You are going to be on the stage. And I mean in an actual official capacity, not one of those sort of like climbing up mid-performance and... And shouting something. Uh, yeah, and, and making a spectacle of yourself. No, I, in the world of amateur dramatics, I've uh, got myself a role <laughs> in Ibsen's Ghosts which is coming, being produ- presented, uh, produced by the Hailing Island Dramatic Society down on the south coast. And to get this job, I've used my unfailing tactic of waiting in the background until other people drop out because of illness, <laughs> um, concern of one kind or the other. So I played a long game and you've, directed... You've poisoned them, haven't you? Yes, yes. Mm. Um, should any of our listeners think, crikey, what I fancy is seeing a production of Ibsen's Ghosts sometime in the new year, when could they see it and where exactly? Um, in Hailing Island, south coast of, of the UK, um, first days of March, four or five nights performance, and all you need to do really is put Hyads, H-I-A-D-S, into Google and it, it will come up, place called Station Theatre. Well, there probably is a springboard from amateur dramatics to our first story and to (laughs) the United Nations, where arms are being twisted, heads banged and doubtless horses traded as the members of the Security Council attempt to locate a form of words for a Gaza ceasefire which the United States will not feel obliged to veto. US President Joe Biden has unsubtly signalled that he is willing to be convinced. By some reports, the standoff is between an urgent suspension of hostility which the US might sign up for versus an urgent and lasting suspension of hostilities about which the US is less enthused. Um, Daniela, first of all, given that lasting 
is rather in the eye of the beholder. Something can last five minutes. It can also last a thousand years. Um, Why does this difference matter? Well, Israel has been explicit from from day one uh, that this is not just another uh, round of violence, which... Mm. Yeah, since 2007, when Hamas took power in Gaza, has been you know perennial uh, uh, perennial issue. You know, there's been some there have been rounds of violence. Israel has uh, carried out operations, killed a number of civilians, uh, and Hamas targets. Uh, the international community tell it to stop. Eventually, it will stop if it lasts a week or or a, or a few days, um, and then the status quo continues. But Israel, right from uh, uh, the atrocities of October 7th has been very clear that this is the operation to end all operations. Mm-hmm. Their their goal is to eliminate Hamas or at least to uh, degrade its operational ability. Now, how realistic this is, um, is r- remains unclear you know, two months into, the, uh, into this war. Um, but patience is running out with Jerusalem, even from its strongest allies and even from uh, Washington, which has been remarkably solid in its support thus far. Well, indeed so. And Andrew, I think it's fair to say that Joe Biden has so far said everything up to something along the lines of, for the love of God, will you people just come up with something that I can vote yay on? Uh, Because the US's patience, I think it's fair to say, has more or less entirely expired. But even if a UN Security Council resolution does pass, and to be clear, that is a significantly bigger whoop than a UN General Assembly resolution, um, would Israel necessarily back off, especially in light of what Daniela has just said, that Israel has been clear from the off that we are not going back to business as usual. I think it would be really difficult for Israel to back off, but not impossible. Uh, and part of the problem is that they have, to the extent that they've clarified what their war objectives are, they have insisted it's the total destruction of Hamas. Mm. But if, meantime, you have to actually negotiate with Hamas because you're trying to get hostages released, that gives a kind of credibility to your enemy, however much you, you dislike it. So um, I think there will be a major difficulty inside Israel um, in terms of the political composition of the government um, and, the, you know, how far do you go in trying to eliminate an organization which some people think it's not terribly realistic to eliminate it or if you manage to destroy Hamas, others might come and take its place. So how we're back to how do you break the cycle? I mean, do we have any idea yet, Daniela, what the... I mean, it, it's one thing and it's not an... Un- an ununderstandable or, or unreasonable thing for a country which has been on the receiving end of something like October 7th to say that, OK, this isn't happening again, we are going to deal with this decisively. Uh, but it is the very definition of easier said than done. Are we clear yet on what Israel's idea of victory would look like? Uh, there's Israel's stated uh aim of victory, which is the elimination of Hamas. But again, what does that look like? And, uh, and what what happens next? And what happens next? Exactly. Israel, uh, you know, Netanyahu and other officials have not been explicit at all in what they see, uh, what they see um, the day after uh, the Hamas regime falls in, in Gaza. And indeed, it's very unclear what, what will be left and what the situation will be. The humanitarian situation there is is already appalling uh, in terms of the the number of houses and the infrastructure, homes and uh, private homes and um, public facilities that have been destroyed. I mean, 
are the conditions there for the for people to sort of merely go back to, to normal? That's that's clearly going to be impossible. Um, and one thing uh, Americans really don't want is Israel to take over security responsibility. There have been some talk of a revamped uh, Palestinian authority taking power in the uh, in Gaza. Um, any idea that, that there would be an international force, for instance, which would might seem the most logical. Um, outcome, at least in the in the short term, uh, I think the likelihood of that is demonstrated by Israel's complete refusal to accept international monitoring of the prospective humanitarian aid coming into Gaza, which is another sticking point in the UN resolution, because Israel wants to retain full control, full inspection. Um, Israel has absolutely no um, interest in accepting any kind of UN or international oversight over what, what's happening in Gaza. So f- we carry on with this um, this guessing game. Um, it may also be interpreted by Israel, uh, Andrew, and it should possibly be interpreted by Israel as another rebuke from one of its allies that Lord Cameron, the UK's foreign secretary, uh, has been visiting Gaza's border with Egypt uh, today, promising an extra £60 million in aid for Gaza. Now, on the one hand, £60 million is not going to make a huge dent in the destruction uh, and destitution which has been visited upon Gaza, but £60 million is still £60 million. And that's not the kind of thing you necessarily do if you are also genuinely uh, unstinting in your support for one side in a particular conflict. I think it reflects um, what we were discussing earlier, that the international community, uh, which obviously doesn't speak with one voice, but Mm. on the consensus in the international community is moving a bit against Israel, is deeply concerned about humanitarian uh, crisis in the area, and it will it will create some tension with Israel. Uh, There will be other countries alongside the UK who want to um, help the humanitarian um, effort. And if, on the other hand, you have Israel saying no, um, any any, uh, aid of whatsoever type has to be monitored and controlled by us, you can see a a potential... um, fragmentation of, of, of the Western position. Uh, just finally on this one, Daniela, one of the things that I'm sure Israel's Western allies are mindful of, uh, quite aside from their own views on what Israel is doing, is their own uh, domestic political situation. And there are a lot of, well, there's a large Palestinian diaspora in a lot of countries in Europe and the wider West. There is a lot of sympathy for Palestinians in Europe and the wider West. There's been some suggestion from uh, Palestinian Britons, uh, that there could be something like the Ukraine family scheme established in which you could sponsor your relatives to get them out of Gaza and bring them to the United Kingdom. Um, is that politically sellable, do you think, not least because you could then be seen to be doing what Israel actually wants? Uh, I, I'm sure deep down where they live, the current Israeli government would be entirely content with everybody in Gaza to leave. I, I think it's uh politically unacceptable on all levels and to all sides. I mean, we're talking now, you know, this is this is the the uh, conservative government. This is all about Rwanda and stopping migration and stopping mm. the small boats and stopping uh, stopping everybody, really. <laughs> um, but but more than that, I think that uh, it would that there would be, you know, the situation is, is absolutely dire. Many people are trying to, to leave Gaza, but it's so symbolic, the idea that people who are, many of the residents of Gaza have descended from um, Palestinian refugees who 
left what became the State of Israel in, in 1948. So to have another wave of dis- displacement, I mean, the uh, you know Jordan and Egypt have been very clear that they're not willing to take masses and masses and masses of refugees, and not just because of instability to their own countries, because then it, again, as you said, it plays into this idea that they're um, collaborating with the occupation and with this apparent uh, cleansing of, of, of Palestine. So although on a humanitarian basis, it makes lots of sense, it, 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 politically, or every way you look at it, I just I can't see any possible future for that. Well, to Argentina now, where new President Javier Malay has hit the ground seething. Last night, he unleashed an emergency decree including at least 300 abrupt reforms, which in total add up to a drastic reduction of the Argentinian state. Among other measures, Malay says Argentina will pay for no further public works, cancelled many already approved, and also said there will be no more state advertising, all of which follows a 50% devaluation of the Argentinian peso and the announcement that nine entire ministries will be abolished. Um, Andrew, before we get on to the, the interesting and possibly unanswerable question of whether any of this is actually going to work, um, is is there an argument that this, this is what he campaigned on, this is what he elected on, he is doing no more or less than what he said he would do? Um, the argument is is there. Um, however, he's doing a bit less than he said he'd do. Mm. Um, on the campaign trail, he said he'd dollarize the economy. And he's pretty much said that's still a goal, but it'll be further ahead. He said he'd shut down the central bank. He's changed his, his tack on that. And he also said he'd cut uh, public spending by about 15 percentage points of GDP. And what the latest measures sort of add up to is around 5% of GDP. So, so if if you like, by historical comparison, what he's doing is extremely radical, um, but it's a little bit less than what he promised on, on the campaign trail. And there may be more pressures on him now to moderate that stance a little. And Daniel, what, what do you think has... I mean, it's not an uncommon dynamic. You run for office as the populist outsider who says, I can fix everything, the system is corrupt, the solutions to all these problems are really easy if only somebody had the courage, and then you actually get elected and find yourself thinking, oh, God, bloody hell, I'm in charge, and this is all quite difficult and complicated. I mean, yeah, it's a classic dynamic, and even if you're not a, a, a right-wing um, dude who likes to brandish uh, chainsaws around and like have eccentric haircuts. Even if you're a, gar- a, a quite a sensible, uh, I- uh, ideologically driven government, once you're in a government, you know you have to compromise and you have to actually do the sort of nitty gritty and do lots of very dull stuff, which helps the country run. Um, but in this case, I mean, you know, as we've seen with with right wing populists around the world as well, if they're sometimes slightly swivel-eyed policies don't actually succeed in solving the problems. It's very easy for them to blame uh, the liberals, the left Mm -hmm. wing, the those sort of dull institutions like courts and rule of law, (laughs) the international community who keep bleating on it about democracy. So, you know, he has got a get-out clause as well because what he's proposing, what he's already putting in place, is it seems excruciatingly painful. Uh, Well, it is excruciatingly painful, and he has, to his arguably minor credit, Andrew, said that this will be painful. He is doing the whole, it will get worse before it gets better thing. But as a related question, I mean, it is often the case that populists, Donald Trump being the most obvious example, prosper in countries which are actually fantastically wealthy, fortunate, um, 
more or less orderly and secure. Uh, you know, their their support is kind of a, a a a tantrum by spoilt, complacent people. When having a Malay said things like. You know, the Argentinian economy is a, a persistent basket case that this country has been run for decades by crooks, bunglers uh, and self-interested pocket lining elites. None of that was necessarily entirely wrong. I mean, inflation now is 143 mm-hmm. percent and that has come down uh, by a long way in recent years. There's no earthly reason why Argentina should not be, as it once was, uh, one of Earth's wealthiest countries. Yes. Um, is he necessarily wrong about everything? No. Um, I think across the ideological divide, everyone can agree that Argentina needs shock treatment. Um, The state of the economy is so terrible that you have to do something radical. I think there are two major problems for Millet. Uh, One is that he controls about 15% of the Senate and 10% of the Chamber of Deputies. So this program, the 366 urgent measures that he announced uh, need to be approved by Congress, and he'll have to do more deals to achieve that, and that may involve him giving up some parts of his overall program. So if all 366 measures, which include privatizing the state oil company, privatizing the national airline, um, some of those will be dropped. The second problem he'll face is that he's pretty much sold to the electric, the idea that he was elected this year uh, and 2024 will be a terrible year. It will be a year Mm. of adjustment and pain. And then, in a four-year presidency, his calculation must be that from 2025 onwards, um, things will get better and he'll position himself perhaps for for re-election. Now, that may not happen, um, he's supported by the traditional right who were in power before and who had a similar approach. It's going to hurt in the first year, but then it's going to get better. But the last time round, it hurt in the first year and it didn't get better. Um, so Millet may have some serious political management issues. Uh, the other thing worth mentioning is he's inexperienced as a politician. Um, he's been doing this for about two years. So he really is an outsider. Um, Daniela, just finally on this, another way in which we might learn quite a lot about uh, President Malay quite quickly is how he responds uh, to widespread dissent. There has already been an amount of this. There have been the first big protests uh, against his austerity programme. He has muttered something about removing state benefits from protesters. I'm not sufficiently expert in Argentinian law to know how possible that is, but that's going to be quite telling, isn't it, how he reacts to his detractors? I mean, the message has been quite clear already, saying that... uh uh, well, you know, the, the, this, the protests are an affront to public order and will disrupt cities. And well, it's actually, if you're going to push forward, even if, however necessary these reforms are, maybe, you know, but they will be painful. We're all agreed on that. You need to uh, give the public an outlet to, to at least protest. I mean, it's going to hit, it's not going to hit everyone uh uh, equally, I mean, austerity here. I mean, it's not not really comparable, but mm. certainly d- affected, you know, certain parts of the population uh, worse than others. And combined with his other sort of authoritarian views and sort of 
wanting to roll back abortion rights and so on. I mean, that that's it, it, it seems that that is his his playbook. I mean, we should really listen, I think, when people show the kind of leaders that they're going to be. Well, let's move along. And it is now 218 days, and I counted, until the Paris Olympic flame will be lit. On current form, Parisians might by then have set a new Olympic record for pre-games whining. Umbridge has been taken regarding the disruption, the expense, the risk of terrorism, the inevitability of strikes, the price of tickets, and even Madame Mayor herself has signed that the city's transport network will simply not be up to the job of transporting an estimated 15.3 million visitors between overrun metro stations and bedbug-infested hotels. Polls suggest that many Parisians are looking wistfully at the recent example set by the Australian state of Victoria, which, having already undertaken to host the Commonwealth Games, decided, on reflection, that it simply could not be bothered. Um, Daniela, obviously you're our first port of call when sports stories are in any way in the news. I know you live for your international sporting tournaments. As a putative Parisienne, if we cast you in such a role with perhaps a little beret, um, where would you be on this? Would you be all for just calling the whole thing off or would you be quite excited for the Games? Um... Well, you know, we have had some experience of we this, have. really, not so long ago. And I remember with exactly the same thing happened in the run-up to the uh, London uh, Olympics, perhaps with slightly fewer strikes, because, you know, we're not French. <laughs> but similarly, there was a disasters and the expense and the threat of terrorism and, and, oh, actually, they won't, the infrastructure won't last. But, you know, when it happened, we were all pretty happy about it. You know, the, 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 the opening ceremony was like delightfully sort of patriotic with Mr. Bean and, you know, and the Queen parachuting in and James Bond, etc., etc. Apart from Paul McCartney, it was just delightful, right? <laughs> it was wonderful. The, the country came together. And, you know, as a Londoner, I use quite a few of the facilities that, you know, that, 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 that have been left over. So... Uh, I think this follows the same trajectory. You moan a lot about it and then you quite enjoy it. Andrew, this does always happen, doesn't it? Because I I can remember exactly that dynamic before the the Games here in London in 2012, which happened two stops away on the central line from where I live. I I nearly got run over crossing the street one day by the South African men's cycle team who were were out for a practice ride on Leightonstone High Road. But I, I can also remember at one remove before Sydney hosted the 2000 Games, sort of lots of mournful Australian saying the whole thing will be a calamity. There was a very well-received satirical TV programme about what a calamity the whole thing was going to be. And then, almost inevitably, it was an absolute triumph. Um, I'm, I'm evenly balanced on this. And mm-hmm. I've, got, um, I've got my optimistic theory. Go uh, my optimistic theory is that the whining is functional. <laughs> In other words... The fact that, you know, there's complaints over bed bugs or, um, you know, all the other things that could go on, transport prices and so on, <coughs> acts as little alerters to the country's government and the games organisers. And they're now in a key period that they can say, well, these complaints are actually justified and, you know, we really must do something about them pretty quickly. Uh, and these other ones, well, they're just whinging and we'll ignore them. So I think there's that kind of a key decision uh, complicated by the fact, as in all countries that um, that play host to the games, that you have different um, power interests. Mm. You have the mayor of Paris, you have the regional government of Ile-de-France, uh, you have the federal ministers for transport and so on, all trying to look good 
um, with elections coming up. So I think that's a factor as well. Attached to which, Daniela, there is a serious point here, I think, that if we are going to have events such as the Olympics, and I, I actually get massively into the Olympics, I will watch almost anything. I got I got really into the sprint canoeing um, <laughs> last time. Quite, 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 quite exciting once you adjust to it. Um, it is surely better that for all the, the messiness and uproar of hosting them in the great democratic capitals, it is better that the great democratic capitals host them than other capitals where everybody whinging in the build-up isn't really an option. Well, true, and actually, you know, they have some they have some um, oversight as to the legacy as well. Mm. I remember that the Sochi Winter Olympics, you know, Russia was just sort of laughing, basically just sort of putting up this, you know, putting it all together and letting it fall into the sea. You know? <laughs> it's not really that there's no there's no oversight. I mean, you can't really. I mean, given the standards of Russian construction, that may not have been deliberate. Well, I think yeah, true, true, true. But I think it. I think it very much was. Um, the thing is about the Olympics; it's supposed to be you know the the, the brotherhood and sisterhood of man and woman, and mm-hmm. you know sports being above politics and stuff. And even more so than in the Eurovision, it's really, really not about that at all. Absolutely not. And given the current parlor state of the world i think next summer in 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 paris we're going to see global politics writ bloodily large um in hopefully not really not real blood but political blood uh on the streets of paris Uh, just finally then on this and this is the real push comes to shove question uh where such an event is concerned andrew it it is really only just down the street uh eurostar strikes permitting would you be tempted to actually visit paris during the Olympics. Uh, yes, um, in line with my optimistic theories. <laughs> um, one possibility is that um, a large part of the population of Paris will have left because July and August holidays, they will have gone to the south of France to mm-hmm. get out of Paris. Um, there'll be uh, a number of tourists who've come specifically for the games, but because of high transport costs and various other matters, uh, they won't be uh, too much in evidence. And it might be the most brilliant time of all um, to visit Paris's museums and other attractions um, and have a really good time. That is some good counterintuitive thinking. Uh, but we will move along to potentially exciting news for those many Monocle Radio listeners who have chafed too long beneath onerous EU strictures against the hunting of wolves. The European Commission has proposed reducing the protected status of wolves from strictly protected to merely protected in response to increasing concentrations of wolf populations in some parts of the continent, causing vexation for some farmers. It has been suggested, if mostly by mad people on the internet, that the impetus for this reform has come from the top, specifically from EC President Ursula von der Leyen, who lost a pony to a wolf attack last year. Um, Andrew, first of all, do we buy the idea that this is UVDL's revenge upon the wolf? I'd love to believe that, but I have to discard it. Uh, I think think it would make a a brilliant uh, storyline. In fact, the wolf has got a name. Um, I've gone and forgotten what it is, but it's something like EGBM 550V. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I did look that up, and it's, it's not it's not one of the most romantic of appellations. His friends call him White Fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm so my argument is that um, I don't think it was a personal revenge uh, by the most senior EU leader, <laughs> but I do think politics comes into it. 
Um, she is from a right-wing party which is trying to um, improve its standing among uh, farmers and hunters. So uh, a tougher line, um, changing the status of wolves, um, is looks as if it's in her political rather than personal interest. Because, Daniela, there is as you will know as a keen history buff, a long and largely inglorious tradition uh, of leaders changing or writing or applying laws in order to to suit their own whim. And we were just wondering what our panellists would do if they were in any such position. If if you just had the power to do things like, for example, not necessarily unprotect wolves, maybe you have the same sort of anti-vulpine grudge as the EC Commission president, but I think mine would mostly involve spelling. Spelling. I think grammar, yeah, apostrophes, spelling things with, without Zs, with Ss instead of Zs. Yeah, but come on, this is common or garden stuff. Do you not want your face on money? Or a... <laughs> I would implement it with a rod of <laughs> Perhaps even cattle prods. I'd make it very, very serious. Uh, and, and, and what about you, Andrew? If you, if you could impose whimsical laws, what, what would you legalise for or against or... I would uh, offer a £1 million fine for any any company that on um, its telephone services says your call is important to us. <laughs> See, that's quite close to one of the ones I would impose. I, I would start, genuinely, I think this is an absolutely election-winning humdinger of an idea. I would tax companies by the minute beyond five minutes for keeping people on hold. I, I would charge them, I don't know, a five or a minute beyond that point. Your call is important to us <laughs> and it's costing us minute by well, minute. Well, exactly. That, that, they, they would come to the phones. But we're, we're looking for something like a, like a bit weirder like have you ever like had any desire to i don't know rename the days of the week after your cats or in anything of that sort declare a national holiday in honor of the melon no but but something i was at the receiving end of one of those things Go on. in 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 my youth uh, in argentina i was detained mm-hmm. uh, by a very heavily armed group of uh, <laughs> of of military of soldiers who told me that um i could not wear short trousers uh, Outstanding. Within a distance, I think it was five blocks uh, from the coastline in Buenos Aires City, um, and we got a severe talking to, but we were we weren't arrested. And this was allegedly the uh, general then in power. His wife um, was an Opus Dei member, very conservative, mm-hmm. conservative Catholic cult, <laughs> um, and she had decreed that certain things like you know wearing shorts were were off. Uh, I'm not sure if that actually got to the stage of legislation, but it was certainly um, See, I, imposed see, upon us. Maybe that's what I would do. I'm, I would ban shorts. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm quite on board with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a reasonable man. I will say for all male human beings over the age of, let's say, 15, unless for the specific purpose of sporting endeavour, uh, yeah, shorts. No. Okay, good. No. Well, sensible policies for a happier nation. Uh, Daniela Pellard and Andrew Thompson, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, following his success at the 2022 Grammy Awards, the American composer John Batiste set himself a new challenge, composing a symphony. This was documented in the film American Symphony. The documentary gave insight into Batiste's way of thinking as well as composing, but as his partner Sulaika Jouard underwent cancer treatment, the direction of the documentary and of the symphony changed course. John came to Midori House and spoke to Monocle's Steph Chungu for the Monocle Weekly. Steph began by asking what the differences are between composing a symphony and making an album. 
My albums are worlds, and the symphony is a world. The difference is a symphony is something that has a a a range of of set principles, and an album has another set of different principles. So, an album is much like a symphony in that it's one world that you're exploring and and you're kind of creating out of nothing, built on a theme, built on a narrative, or built on some some principles, but the principles are very different. It wasn't a blend of your sound, it was a blend of other sounds, Native American, Louisiana, um, all that sounds and culture blend into one piece of music. What challenges did you face when composing it? Well, I wanted to recreate the symphony. I had to hand select each musician one by one. And you have people who, they read music, others who don't read music, others who play in this form of improvised music, others who don't improvise, others who play electronic modular synthesizers and samplers, some who play archaic folk instruments that have never played indoors in their entire life. How do you make a piece of music that everybody can read or everybody can be on the same page at the same time? So we had to invent a new system that has never been done in the symphonic context or in any context, really. We had to invent a new way of playing together, and I really enjoyed that, but it was also very, very difficult. It took quite a while (laughs) to figure out what our systems would be so that close to 200 people from all walks of life could come together and play a piece of music together. What brought the idea to document it? You know, there's so much that, especially when you think about the heritage of people of color, women, musicians who are creating iconic works that shift things forward in the genre, in the culture, and the expression of these things is oftentimes so magnetic it can't be put into words. It's so so powerful, so profound, you can't explain it. And if it's not documented properly, it's forgotten from our collective memory. So I think that it was important for all of the incredible work that I stand on the shoulders of, the, the ancestors that I stand on the shoulders of, and the work of the, the symphonic canon to be expanded by this being documented. And so I thought, if I'm not going to document it, who will? And that was the beginning of us making American Symphony, both the the piece and the film that's on Netflix. There's many scenes of um, in the documentary. And one that um, struck for me was the elements coming together for the first time, or for the first time as a viewer. In your view, what was it like hearing the start of the symphony for the first time? 
You know, the people had a a sense of what it was when we played the music for the first time, but no one really knew exactly. I, actually, I'll correct myself. People had a vision from what I'd explained to them, but no one really knew what it was. And it was, in my, in, in my mind, it was clear, but the input of the musicians is what made it complete for me. They have personalities and they have experiences that clarified the right way to do things. So it all came together in a rehearsal one day. I remember it very clearly. And everybody started to, their light turned on. Everybody said, oh, I see what we're doing. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. And then once everybody got the vision, it enhanced the piece even further and it became very, very clear that this was something that we had all never done before. The premise of American Symphony was mainly about your journey into composing the symphony until the, the premise changed when your partner, Suleika Joed, underwent treatment for her cancer diagnosis. I wanted to ask how you navigated that while composing the symphony because the scenes that the viewer will see in the documentary, it's not easy. Life is not easy. Life is not something that comes at you in a neat package. And that way, I see art and life as one and the same. And that way, it's part of the, the journey. When you compose, you're processing all of the things that you've ever heard. Everything that you've ever heard, everything that you've ever done makes you unique and makes you who you are. And that's also why when you have tragedy, that's that's a part of your artistry. And it's not something that for me is distracting beyond just wanting to be there for Sulaika. It's not something that took away from the process of composition. It's just a part of the flow. That was John Baptiste speaking to Steph Chungu. The full interview is out now on the Monocle Weekly and American Symphony is available to watch now on Netflix. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Daniela Pellet and Andrew Thompson. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>